Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Peter Pletza. Uh, Peter is CEO of Spire, a company that owns and operates satellites that get signals from Earth. Spire recently went public and trades under the ticker SPIR. Peter, welcome to World of DAS. It is my pleasure to be here, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. So I, I noticed Spire you know, has launched over 100 satellites. How many satellites are we at today or how many per month are you guys or a quarter or... We always say it's about 100. Um, we have launched, uh, I think it's about 150 or so. Uh, our our constellation size is like off the range of, you know, 65 to 85 satellites. Um, uh, we currently have, a, have a, a quite a bit more than that in operation. It is indeed the world's largest multi-purpose um, uh, satellite constellation and the world's largest a constellation that uses radio frequency to collect data. Give us a sense of like how the cost curve. So we've got like developing the satellites, there's launching, and then there's maintaining the satellite once it's up there. How has the cost curve changed over the last 10 years? And how do you expect it to change over the next 10 years? So you actually touch on a really interesting point that I think is often not really appreciated about what is happening in this industry, right? Um, you're talking about it from a cost perspective. Um, and yes, you know, launch cost has come down. I think, I think, I think that's true um, uh, over, the last, over the last 10 years. Uh, but, you know, the satellites we're talking about here are satellites about the size of a bottle of wine, right? Of a, of a loaf of bread. Right? It's very similar to what happened when we replaced the mainframe computer with like a PC on our desk. That same kind of transformation. And the same thing um, from a performance perspective is happening as well in space, where the capability of that, you know, wine bottle size satellite is improving 10x every five years. Yeah. So what is really driving that transformation here is the performance per kilogram, the performance per dollar. Yes. One is changing tenfold every five years. Oh, oh so sorry. What, what you're saying is even though the dollars per kilogram is is going down from the launch and stuff like that, like that's that's one nice piece of the equation. But the more important one is that might be going down 50%, but the performance is going up 10x or something. You nailed it, Oren. It's like this truly exponential change of performance per kilogram, performance per dollar. And is that just, I like, I can see that in my phone or something, like it's the camera's getting better and just, you, you could just see the upgrades happening as the, as my phone gets better, you presume a satellite gets better. That's exactly the same thing. It's this, it's this um, exponential curve that you have seen Moore's law driving in the compute industry is now a similar thing is driving this. Um, in the satellite industry, and it was actually the piece of research that you know um, uh, I did to to see that you know now it's um, uh, twelve, almost fifteen years ago, um, uh, was the reason why we started the company in the first place. Recognizing that here is a similar underlying fundamental trend that now has been going on for almost twenty five years. Interesting. Now I know you don't like you guys don't focus on imagery, but in the imagery world. 
um, uh, I get a sense like the lens is is a pretty big piece of the of the equipment and um, and you need a as you want to get a higher fidelity, you need a bigger lens for um, for the signals. Like, is is there some sort of limiting factor like a like a lens would be for an imagery that that only somebody from the signals would understand? Uh, yes and no. Um, it's a little bit like the quality of a microphone, right? Um, it is not necessarily the size of the microphone that is driving the quality, but like how it is made. And then the digital signal processing, which sits after, you know, inside the microphone and in many cases inside a computer. And when you use radio frequencies to collect data, it's a very similar story. It's, uh, it starts off at very, very high bandwidth, um, uh, uh, large files, they're called um, often IQ files, that you then apply uh, uh, digital signal processing and filtering to extract the information out of and it. And you're applying that filtering at the act in the actual like little wine bottle satellite. Um, and then before, I assume at some point you have to do something local and then send it to the ground. We do both, Aaron. Uh, one of the nice things and the reason why we are in the RF um, uh, data field is that it is so software defined. You can literally change what type of data, what kind of data, what amount of data, what quality of data um, a certain device, a certain sensor is collecting through software. So we do this processing both on board the satellite as well as on the ground for certain pieces. And the processing on board the satellite because it's a bandwidth cost or it's difficult to send all this data down? Like, why do you process it locally first? It's called computing at the edge. And you see this in a load of application on Earth as well, that uh, there is a certain overhead when you transform uh, or send back the raw data. And you can get rid of that overhead and replace um, that overhead with lower latency of the data because you can transform more information, more knowledge. Because at the end of the day, our customers uh, only in rare circumstances care about the raw data. They care about the answer to a question. In doing that on orbit, it's just more energy efficient than trying to do it on the ground. And it's faster as well. Oftentimes that Spire will get um, compared to like other companies like Planet you know, you both operate satellites, you both went public around the same time, planet much more focused on imagery, Spire more focused on like broader signals. How do you see just the, and obviously the many, many other players as well. Like, how do you see the market evolving over time? I think that's a, that's a, that's a great segue into um, a way to understand what is happening in this industry. And for that, I often use an analogy of the transportation industry. There are similar devices in the transportation industry that have windows and passengers and seats and captains and engines and steering wheels. Um, and we end up calling them planes, ships and trucks. And everyone understands the difference between a plane, a truck and a ship, right? Unfortunately, our industry still calls all of them a satellite and a satellite and a satellite. <laughs> they are just as different from each other as a, as, as a plane, a truck and a ship. So indeed there are companies that use visible light to collect data. Um, visible light, of course, it comes from the sun. So it has to be day. Um, uh, it would be good if there's good weather because otherwise you don't see much either. 
um, and it's, it's particularly relevant over land. One of the things that I find extremely challenging about um, using satellites to take pictures is that for many, many applications, there are terrestrial alternatives, drones, you know, cross dusters, uh, crop dusters, you know, uh, planes, helicopters, even self-driving cars and certain Balloons too, Balloons, right? right? So that's, I, I, I find it's just challenging, right? And the other element is you talked about the piece of glass of a camera as being a, a big and important component and a piece of glass is not very software defined. So once yeah. your camera is launched, there's limited things that you can do with it. Right now, there are very, very smart people that you know um, work with that and have built phenomenal data sources based on that capability. Um, we are focusing on using RF signals because they work day and night. They work um, uh, in bad weather, in good weather. They're completely independent, and it's a software-defined device, which means that we can change what it does um, um, uh, even after it's launched. And then there is a third group of satellites, which are just basically, and we call them, you know, many call them telecommunication satellites that provide, you know, broadband internet or satellite yeah. TV or other forms of communication. And so I like to think of it as like looking satellites, which are the cameras, listening satellites, which use the RF and talking satellites, which are the, the bandwidth providers. You have many different products that Spire has. One of the products you have is for like marine vessels. And they give out this like AIS signal. And then essentially you're collecting these signals both from space and from the ground. Is, is that correct? So we generally only collect stuff from space and we only focus on data that can only and exclusively be captured from space. That is what we call our clean data uh, 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 layer. And then we add analytics to it and then we add third-party data sources to it. And so in, in, the, in, the, in the marine uh, space, we do add some terrestrial data on top of it as well, so that our customers don't have to do the integration and we can answer questions for them rather than just giving them a fire hose of data and says, you know, you figure it out. We combine it, we create smart data. In certain instances, we even create predictive data, predictive solutions um, that help them answer their business problems directly. Spire recently acquired a company called Exact Earth, which I thought maybe had these ground stations um, to to bring in the the data. Like, does that help in the more holistic solution? And then do you also work with like other partners that have these ground stations? So we do have um, other other partners on the on the ground station side. Um, exact Earth in particular is a company that has also space based data, and it has space based data that is more sensitive to its smaller vessels, augmenting our data storage there. And it has data which has lower latency. So for extremely time critical and sensitive applications and customers, that is now an additional product that we can offer them to solve their challenges. Why would it take longer to get the data from the satellite than from some other thing? When you have a satellite that is collecting data over the 70% of the world, which is oceans, um, it generally requires some form of connectivity to the ground to get this data into the internet. And so what often happens and what you know, our constellation currently does is that it collects the data and as the satellite travels further, 
it will then reach a ground station that is sitting on some piece of land. It might be like in the middle of a city or it might be on an island like, like, like St. Helena or Falkland Islands. I mean, then it's downloading the data over that, you know, piece of land, so to speak, and feeds it into the internet. Now, there is something that you can do with, uh, with satellites, and that is you can start to link them. And we have started doing that linking of satellites because then the satellite can say, okay, I've collected some piece of data. Maybe the satellite can see three other satellites and those satellites happen to be over the ground or something. Again, like you, you nailed it, right? And Exact Earth has access um, in their data stream. That's what they do um, already today. Is it important for your satellites to be like lower to the earth or can they be higher? Or how, does it matter where it is or uh, to get these RF signals? So there is a, there's a couple elements there. I would like the primary element for us is a, is a cleanliness and an environmental um, uh, uh, strategy. Our satellites are in an orbit where due to their size, the altitude and the way they are built, they disintegrate into their atoms in just a few years time often much faster than a paper bag you might pick up at the supermarket. And that means that we are really hyper responsible user of this public good called space. So you, you don't want the space debris flying around and, you know, we don't create any of that. And so for a company, which is pretty mission driven with regards to, you know, sustainability, climate change, you know, um, weather risk due to climate change, being a, a very, very responsible and, 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 and clean and, and uh, a sustainable actor just means a lot for us. Um, there is a second element, which I don't want to hide here, which, you know, I think I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners that come from the RF data world understand is that um, the lower you are, the better your signal to noise ratio gets, which is a technical term for how easy is it to understand the information above the background noise. You can think of it as like you walk into a room at a party Right. It has a pretty big signal, a pretty bad signal to noise ratio when you're trying to talk with someone because it's really, really loud. And what you do is you get really close to someone with your ear, like you close the distance and then you can understand them and your signal to noise ratio just got better. A similar thing is happening here with satellites and Earth. So there is a benefit for being lower as well from the signal to noise ratio. Back to these marine vessels, when they're giving out these these signals, what's in the signal that they give out? Is it um, GPS position? Is it they, they've got their own call sign? They talk about the type of ship they are. Like, what are they giving out as they're? And then how often are they giving out these signals? It's a really rich information set. Uh, I think it's it's like it's over 20 different data points, and I don't know all of them on top of my head, but it is name. Um, location, speed, heading, origin, where you're coming, where you're going, type of cargo, um, often how deep it sits in the water. So it is a really rich information set um, that they send out um, very, very frequently. So when I say very frequently, it depends on their speed and their location, but it can be, you know, every few seconds to every few minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. When you're collecting all this data, I imagine like you don't often need data every few seconds or even maybe even every few minutes, maybe you need once an hour or something from a ship or something. So is that one of part of the post-processing is just to throw away some of this additional data? Like it's not as necessary or. 
That's exactly right. So for example, that is one of the um, data intelligence that we apply even already on the satellite. Like if we were to pick up a piece of information from a particular ship, and it is the same piece of information just within a few seconds, we actually don't download both of those pieces of information because they are literally redundant. And we only download that information, which is actually helping customers understand uh, what is going on on the oceans. Now, if I've got a, a ground station, let's say at a port, and I'm picking up some of this information, obviously, I'm really only getting the information near the port. So that's that's the downside, I presume, of the ground station. What's the upside? Like, am I getting better? Am I somehow getting better information than a Sally would get? Like, why would these ground stations be valuable? There is, of course, a good amount of activity happening on the ports, right? I mean, that's where everyone congregates. Um, the other thing that is, uh, is, the, is the biggest advantage of those ground stations is that they don't have to wait to find a ground station to download the data from the satellite. They're connected to the internet right away. That's exactly right. Okay, so right when the ship comes in, I know. Right when the ship goes out, I know. Um, okay. Problem is you only know it for a very short period of time. Right. More than 80% of the time, a ship is out of sight, so to speak, from um, uh, the land where you could place a receiver. So the majority of the time you have, you used to have no information about over 90% of global trade. And the way I see is what AIS is for marine vessels, ADS is for planes. Is that a good analogy? That's a very good analogy. Both uh, were created for uh, uh, safety reasons, and they were originally meant to be picked up by vessels in their vicinity. And then we have deployed a technology which listens and picks up to that information from space. Because these planes are moving at a much, much faster speed than, than, than the marine vessels do, is it more complicated to get these signals from space or, or does it make it easier or does it not make a difference? There is a difference in terms of technical complexity, but I wouldn't say it is, you know, massive. Okay. And is there anything like super unique about what these planes are giving out that's different from what a marine vessel is giving out? I presume also they're giving out their position, maybe their altitude, you know, some of these other types of things. So, of course, the information from, from planes is four-dimensional um, uh, uh, plus the time yep. uh, uh, versus, versus a, a, a three-dimensional piece of information from the ships. Uh, uh, it also is in a richer protocol where there is more additional information which could be embedded. But on a, on a principle basis, it is very, very similar uh, between ADSB and AIS. I can imagine with just like a ship, a plane will have like an identifier, let's say a tail number or some other type of yep. thing. And then it's got, um, but also might be like the United Airlines flight 2207 or something like that going from Chicago to Singapore, right? So it's got this like other kind of identifier for this particular mission that this plane is on. Do you understand like both, both of those things from this ADS uh, signals? So we as a company do, um, I don't believe it is actually immediately directly broadcasted um, through the ADSB uh, uh, information. 
I guess you're getting it from like other information that's going like a flight trackers or other types of things that are happening. Well, flight trackers, you know, those, those tend to be customer of ours, but there is other, other data sets, which you can fuse into to identify things like, uh, uh, who the plane belongs to and what flight it is um, uh, and what its flight schedule is uh, so that you can create a product where you, for example, have um, uh, discrepancies between the, the schedule and where the actual location of the plane is. And you don't have to guess because you can actually see the uh, hear the plane and you know where it should be based on its uh, on its flight plan. And you can see an alert things uh if there are uh, discrepancies about it got it there's some sort of deviation from the plan or some other type of thing that's super interesting and then do all planes have ads or only like you know like does a prop plane or you know have it as well again very very similar to ships where uh the, the the legally mandated one is for ships greater than 300 tons and for planes, it is greater than, I think, 17 passengers and 67,500 pounds of takeoff weight. So again, the vast majority of, uh, uh, of planes um, have it, but not every single one of them um, is mandated to have it. Now, increasingly, people do install it because it is a really, really nice safety feature. Uh, the smaller the plane, you're less likely to fly in international waters, but you might fly in remote regions and being able to track you is just a, um, a, an additional safety feature. Uh, so more and more planes are having those devices installed. Can you imagine for like smaller flying objects, like a drone or something like that, like they would have these types of things in the future, or is that just like unlikely to happen? So here I'm just going to be a personal speculator. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that in a world where drones and, uh, uh, and self-flying cars take off in the way those in the know of this industries predict that people will not want to know where they are, um, and that they're not in some shape or form tracked, given the particular sensitivity with regards to security that we have in the airspace across the world. So my sense would be that there's gonna be some, you know, ongoing identification going on so that those objects do not collide with with other objects of the same size, or even worse, larger objects like passenger planes and create problems. In the US, would that be a, a regulatory body like the FAA, which kind of mandates those things, you think? Or how, how does that evolve? Again, speculating, uh, and I'm not a pilot uh, here, but my sense is that, yes, it would be something from a regulatory body. And I do believe that the FAA would be the appropriate authority. I do believe it's the authority that gives right now all of the drone regulations where they can fly, you know, beyond line of sight, you know, which airspaces they can enter and not. So that would be my guess, the the regulatory entity that would drive the, the adoption of certain identification and security and safety measures that allow a wider adoption and use of that technology. Okay, so I, I know you've got these kind of like, a bunch of different products that you guys do. And I think I have a really good understanding of why you want to track like marine vessels, why you want to do the planes, 
what I, and, and how you do it. But you have this other product, which is really about understanding the weather. Um, and this one is hard for, was harder for me to understand. So can you, can you explain to us a little bit more about like what types of signals are you getting um, from the ground? And then how does that help us understand the weather better? So weather prediction is generally driven by data from space. If you think about weather can move hundreds of miles um, in, in just a few hours. So with uh, something like, you know, 95% of the world's population living on 5% of the world's surface area, where you could have ground-based sensors, weather is created and moves from areas where we have no sensors. You know, think of like the 75% of the world, which is, you know, remote region, deserts and, and oceans and stuff. Um, into areas where there actually are people and businesses and, and stuff like that, right? So you need space to, to, to measure the weather all over the globe so that you can predict it where certain human or economic activity is happening. And so something like 80% of weather forecast accuracy is driven by data from satellites. If you think about the core elements of weather, it is what's the temperature? Is, is it, you know, what's the, it's called moisture, basically what is like, you know, is, is, is raining or is it likely to rain or is there, is there hail or is there snow? Um, and then, you know, what's the wind, right? You know, we call it pressure. There is a very, you know, I would say um, smart way of measuring those elements that the incredibly um, uh, uh, ingenious people at NASA tried out for the first time, I think it was in the 70s, to measure weather and atmospheric properties on Mars. Now, if you think about that, that, that old high school experiment where you took like a prisma of glass and you shone a, a, a ray of light on it yeah. and it gets bent into the rainbow colors, or when you swim underwater and you look outside and people look a little bit funny, that is the bending of light beams as they go through a medium that is thicker than air. And what we do with using radio frequency is exactly the same thing. It's just not rays of light, it's rays of radio frequency based electromagnetic waves. And as they go through the atmosphere, they bend just like light bends as it goes through water or it goes through, um, through that the glass prisma. And we can measure that bending as that our RF signal goes through the atmosphere. And the amount it bends is driven by things like the temperature, the pressure, and the moisture. So by measuring the bending of it and a few other properties and a lot of math and physics, um, you end up being able to derive very detailed temperature profiles and in your channels of pressure profiles and to some degree moisture profiles. And they then drive uh, uh, weather forecast accuracy um, improvements as one of the data sources that flows into those so-called numerical weather prediction models. And are you like gridding the earth? Like, are you putting some sort of square or hex grid and then and then you're you're taking temperatures of that grid? How do you relay this information? So we relay that information, not that dissimilar from what you just described, 
it is a three-dimensional piece of information set because it has vertical information as well. It's like at very, very fine levels of on the vertical. And it is measured all across the globe. As a matter of fact, as far as we know, Spire collects more of this so-called radio occultation data than the rest of the world combined. And then we take that pieces of information and we make it available uh, on one hand to public entities whose mission it is to protect you know, life and property of the public. Um, um, and they fuse it into their models and come out with you know, um, uh, their weather forecasts. And then Spire also has, uh, uh, we were the first company to do that, uh, a global numerical weather prediction model where we incorporate a number of data sources, like the terabytes of data, including the data that we uniquely produce and process to drive um, weather prediction products that are not just a general, this is what the weather is going to be, but that really help corporations and in certain instances, um, uh, 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 governments to fulfill their mission. An offshore power plant uh, which wants to know how much wind is actually going to blow so that they can tell the grid exactly how much energy they're going to produce. Um, a logistics company which needs to understand, well, how much delay I'm going to have in my supply chain because of weather disruption. Agricultural companies trying to understand, on one hand, when should I harvest and should I actually water today or tomorrow based on what the weather is going to be all the way to more extreme weather events like a freezing event you know remember we had we had earlier this year in texas or a hurricane or, or a deep snowstorm you know that hit colorado that have massive impacts on large infrastructures like an airport like an airline um uh, uh, all of those events are happening increasingly often because climate change is exerting its influence on humanity through ever more extreme weather patterns. Now, I want to get a couple of questions about just like the business model and stuff. So when we, we had a, we had a uh, conversation with Will Marshall, who's the CEO of Planet Labs on World of DAS, and he, he was really insistent that Planet was a data company and not a satellite or space company. Do you see Spire in a similar way or how do, you, how do you think of Spire as what it produces? Spire was conceived from day one as a data company. Our principle from day one was we are a company about data that can only and exclusively be gathered from space. That was our first pillar. Our second pillar was that it's data which can only be captured from a constellation of satellites. And the third one was that it is a software defined device that you can change on orbit. We have been this data and analytics company from day one, uh, integrating the collection of the data and then driving analytics and predictions based on this data in one integrated fashion inside the company from day one when we started the company nine years ago. And so you have this proprietary data that you're getting but then you also have the analytics. I assume some of your customers are also kind of analytics companies that might want to like package their own analytics and sell them. 
like how do you think about those or, or how do you think about those types of companies? Because in some ways they could compete with you on your analytics. Um, like how do you see some of these other companies uh, long term? So we really thrive on helping our customers grow their business faster, more profitably and more sustainably. And so we use our analytics to help them drive their business. It is more a matter of degree rather than binarily, you know, it is either data or analytics. It is just, for example, we talked about um, flight plans and flight planning beforehand, just fusing a flight level plan data um, with, uh, with our tracking data together just removes one step in the process for, let's say, an application service provider in servicing, let's say, um, a, a, a ground operations a company at an airport terminal to optimize their level of operations. There is a whole lot more that they have to do to really serve that customer. And the more we can uh, take off from them of stuff that they don't have to do, and they can just leverage right out of the box, the easier it is for them to grow their business faster, more profitably, and more sustainably. And how do, how do you like price the data? I think that is a fascinating question. <laughs> there is generally some form of alternative that people have that helps you identify what the right price is going to be. And then there is generally a sense of uh, how much cost are you helping the customer take out of their system? How much benefit are you creating for them? And then, you know, the, the rule of thumb in that I have seen and people have talked to me about in the data and analytics space is that as a painkiller, meaning that you remove some cost for a customer, you can charge um, and capture around 20%. 80% of the created benefit goes to the customer. Now that's a rule of thumb across various industries, um, uh, and I think and I think that's a, that's a good benchmark to uh, uh, to think about. You don't want to be too aggressive, even if you could, because you have a, have a strong position um, in uh, in sharing that value creation, uh, because that creates stronger long term relationships and more long term uh, growth and benefits. Now today, I think most of Spire customers are large organizations that probably pay very high dollars for this data and analytics. Have you thought about like some sort of self-serve go-to-market motion where you can have a thousands, maybe even millions of very small customers? So the universe of customers for us is in the hundreds of thousands. Um, we do have, as you said, you know, hundreds of customers today. Um, and maybe the self-serve model is something worthwhile to look into. Um, so far, we have not made any big investments in seeing if, the, if that is a, um, a model that really helps a larger number of customers solve their business challenges. Because you can imagine, like, if I was an engineer, I might want to just just like start playing with the data real quick. Maybe I don't have a huge budget myself. Maybe I only have a few hundred dollars a month, but I can start like playing with a small amount of the data and building an application. And then I can move, you know, I get excited about it. And then maybe I'm part of a larger organization that moves up, to, you know, moves up the chain or something. 
maybe some of these engineers don't want to talk to a salesperson. You can see how this like could be really valuable as a go-to-market motion. Absolutely, are and I mean, definitely are use cases for that. Um, at the end of the day, for us, it's really important to understand the customer and solve their challenges. And they are often driven from an organizational level rather than from an individual um, uh, level. Uh, but I, I, I absolutely uh, uh, want, want to not discount what you're saying as indeed uh, that could be, that could be a, a, a driver for helping even more people solve the challenges and opportunities that they face with a data set that is really quite unique and really, really hard to capture because by the definition of how we've built it, the data set requires a large satellite constellation. You sell this data, it's super valuable, but if you think of just the broader world of just understanding the world, there's there's probably lots of other data. You know, data is an ingredient that goes into a decision. Where I work, SafeGraph, we sell geospatial data about like places. There's there's like coasters, CoreLogic. There's all these different companies that have different data. Like, how do you see yourself partnering with these like other companies that also provide data? That's exactly what we do with application service providers. So application service providers that solve a particular use case for an industry, um, they generally take in data from multiple providers and integrate it. And in certain instances, uh, we can help adoption and growth of their business model by combining maybe with two or three other data sets already internally from us so that when they integrate us, they don't have to integrate three or four data sets. They just get one API, which has those three or four data sets already integrated, making their life easier, their go-to-market faster, and their business grow more sustainably and more profitably. Typically, like the biggest customers for satellite data are either national security organizations or some sort of governmental organizations like I imagine that the go-to-market motion for that type of customer is very, very different than for a typical, let's say you're selling to a bank or something. How do you think about working with those types of customers? So I think there is a, there is a relationship to the sales motion and the size of the contract and the size of the organization. And when you think of the government, it is a very, very large organization. I mean, we're talking about the market cap of Apple about to reach $3 trillion as the first company in the world to do so. I don't know what the market cap of the United States government is, but I can tell you that its revenue that it's producing is like trillions of dollars every single year, which I do think is still just a wee bit larger than the revenue that is produced by even Apple at this point in time. So I think the relationship just changes with the size of your customer and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the size of the contract. And the size of the contract is just a measurement of like the size of the problem that you are uh, solving for your customer. You're now a public company. Why did you choose to go that route? Why did you choose to go via SPAC? could have stayed private longer, like what went into that decision? How did you, how did you end up making that decision? Well, you actually laid out the answer almost um, uh, just, just, a, just a few minutes ago, 
by saying we sell to large corporations, we sell to governments. And the only other thing that we also do is we sell to international corporations. Now, when you sell to those types of entities, um, they want to know that uh, you're going to be around. They want to have transparency about you. They, they have a hard time going up to their, you know, to their CRO. So we recognized that to give our customers more comfort with what we are doing um, and really drive sales to large corporations, international corporations and governments, being a public company is uh, uh, stressful for us but really helpful for the customer. And that is the only thing that matters. All right, a couple of personal questions. I know that you used to be like a, um, an FX tra- a researcher and trader at a hedge fund. That's an interesting career path from there to you know, where you are today, CEO of a big data and space company. How did that prepare you to better do what you're doing today at Spire? So I was, of course, a physicist in my first life. Of course, you know, I spent yeah, a wee yeah. bit of time at CERN and a wee bit of time at the Max Planck Institute and always had this fascination with leveraging space to solve problems on Earth. But it was an industry that was excruciatingly slow. It was not very dynamic. And I, I'm a software developer since a teenager. You know, always had like a bit of a business um, uh, uh, mindset had a small company. And so, so it, I, I wanted something more dynamic. And so I actually ended up with, uh, with the Boston Consulting Group in Germany. And then they sent me to Asia working with financial institutions, with energy institutions, stock exchanges, futures exchanges, um, uh, and really spent a lot of time around the markets. And so when they then sent me to Harvard Business School, um, I, I, I did two things there. You know, one is I, I really dove into this understanding of the markets and how they are a reflection of the future of the world, right? I mean, the markets are this kind of cash flow of future, of future business. And in a sense, you know, are always trying to understand what is going to happen in the future. And that is something I find fascinating. And the other thing is I, I wrote a mission statement for my life by, by reading a book, which is called um, uh, The Path from Laurie Beth Jones which leads you through a, a, a number of steps that in the end give you a very simple sentence that encapsulates a mission statement for your life, which for me came out to be um, to lead, inspire, and create the business of space for the benefit of all. And you knew this even before you went into space. I wrote this almost 25 years ago. Oh my gosh. Okay. But there was nothing to be done in space. It was just slow, right? And so that's why I you know, ended up um, uh, doing quantitative investment management, focused on emerging markets, always looking in you know, transformational technologies. You already knew 25 years ago you wanted to do something in space. So I imagine you're trying to set yourself up to do something like why work for some sort of like quant fund? Why does that set yourself up for that? So... It's not quite how you said, you know, as I said, even as a teenager, I was really fascinated with this idea of leveraging space to solve problems on earth. Okay. But there was nothing to be done in space. So I worked at places that allowed me to use other means to understand how the world works and solve problems, you know, on Earth, right? And I, I, I traveled to 65, 70 countries. You know, I lived in, I don't know, I don't know how many countries, you know, one, two, three, four continents, right? 
Um, uh, so that's that's what you do as a consultant, right? You know, in business school, we read about a thousand cases of businesses with particular problems. And when you are a quantitative investment manager, you built financial models, quantitative models that try to understand what is happening in the world today and what is going to happen in the future. It's always about understanding the world and what is going to happen. Oh, I get, okay, so now it makes it makes a lot of sense. If you're like a macro uh, hedge fund person, you're trying to understand the world and where the world is today, where the world might have been that people don't understand and where the world is going. And in some ways, like if you're a, a, a space company, space is in some ways, space isn't really about space. Space is really about the earth, right? You're pointing everything at the earth. You're collecting it on the earth and you're trying it's to understand the same thing about the earth. About earth. Like one thing that is just um, really at the center for us is like, um, there's a lot of people that talk about moon and Mars and Venus and asteroids and all sorts of other things. For us, it is solely about Earth. Leveraging space to solve problems on Earth, which data that is unique and powerful because of that ultimate vantage point from which it is collected. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that is generally bad advice? It's not possible. It's not possible. So anyone who says it's not possible. Just whenever someone tells you it's not possible, don't even ask why. <laughs> ask how would it be possible? Because it dramatically changes your brain by not looking for why it is not possible. Go directly to how would it be possible? God, so what, what, what would have to happen for this to actually be possible? Maybe there's something that has to be invented or this, uh, you know, or we have to reorganize the government or, you know, whatever it might be. Okay. The conventional wisdom when we started the company was that A, the nanosatellites we use are toys that will never amount to anything. And I did a research study which showed that. And number two, to do what we are said, you know, nine, 10 years ago that we will do some very, very smart scientists from like very preeminent institutions in the US said, well, they will have to break a few laws of physics. Today, they are actually really good customers uh, and we solve some important problems to them. So I would say the conventional wisdom of like, you know, as everyone knows, this is not possible. I just, you know, just, just, do not believe that. <laughs> okay, this is great. Peter, thank you so much. Tell, tell us where people can find either more about you or more about Spire on the on the broader interwebs. So we are, of course, at the web, you know, www.spire.com. Um, we are constantly and aggressively hiring. So go to www.spire.com slash careers. Um, you can find out more um, about me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Okay. Um, I do have a Twitter, but it's not as active. But you can find me on LinkedIn as www.linkedin.com slash IN slash Peter Platzer, or you can just search for my name there. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Peter, thank you so much for being with us at World of Dash. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.